Good evening. On behalf of the Gospel of Life Committee and Our Lady of Mount Carmel, welcome. Thank you for coming. Tonight is our fourth event in our Sundays at 7 series for Respect Life Month. We'd love to have you back next week for our final talk by Sister Peter Marie, a Nashville Dominican who is assistant principal here at the parish school. Patrick J. Deneen is a professor of political science and holds the David A. Potenziani Memorial Chair of Constitutional Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Say that three times. He has also taught at both Princeton and Georgetown universities. He's the author of four books, a regular contributor to a variety of online journals and blogs, and he receives frequent invitations to lecture and speak. Professor Deneen will speak about hope against optimism as it relates to theology and the Christian virtues, as well as political philosophy and society's loss of Christian culture and identity. At the conclusion of the talk, the event, there will be baskets for donations if you're willing to share to help continue our pro-life activities here at the parish. And thank you in advance for your generosity. Also, we will try to field a few questions at the end if we can, but Professor Deneen has a very early class tomorrow morning, so please understand that he will need to hightail it out of here as soon as we wrap up. He's got a couple hour drive ahead of him. Please join me in welcoming Professor Patrick Deneen. Oh, good evening. Uh, good evening, everyone. Can you hear me okay with this lapel? Uh, let's see. Let's see. Put it here. Is this any better? Does this work? Okay. All right. I'll try to speak up also a little bit. Uh, it's intimidating. First of all, thank you for the invitation to be here uh, and to join this, uh, to join you for this evening at this very vibrant parish. I've been hearing how many masses you have, and if you've been to mass today, you get extra points uh, for coming back uh, uh, tonight. Um, it's also intimidating for me to be up here because um, I'm, I'm usually the first to sort of criticize uh, or at least uh, uh, give my, give my, my uh, uh, rating on the sermon that I just heard. So I'm, I'm feeling like a little already the pressure uh, that, that doubtless uh, the, the looks that I'll be getting. Um, I'm, I'm here to, as part of a speaker series to talk about hope. Uh, and uh, I, thought I, would, I thought I would do this by... Uh, by talking a little bit more in the, in the vein in which I, I typically uh, teach and think about uh, the topic that I work on, which is political philosophy. And like most topics that touch on human subjects, it almost always boils down to what we think the nature of human beings are, what our political philosophy is, what we think society should be like, what we think the nature of how we organize um, neighborhoods and the architecture that we build. Almost every aspect of, uh, of our sort of social, political, economic world is based on certain assumptions about what human nature is. So every class I teach is basically boils down to an exploration of this, of contesting ideas. And at the root of what human nature is, is what makes us distinct. What do we think that makes human beings distinct as a creature? Uh, surely we are, of course, animals like every other animal we have certain basic needs but there is something distinct about human beings 
Aristotle thought that it was our natural sociability, that we are by nature political animals, and Aquinas said that we're by nature political and social animals, and that seems to be a pretty good argument, although even Aristotle said, of course, it's also true of bees and ants, and we could add probably chimpanzees and dolphins and so forth. But that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good uh, possibility. Another possibility would be that we are the creatures that are by nature reasoning creatures. Uh, we're creatures that can use our rationality uh, to reflect, to, to make certain kinds of decisions to elucidate our condition, an argument that uh, Aquinas also makes. Tonight I'm going to at least put one other possibility on, on the table that I don't think is comprehensive and defines every aspect of human life, but it certainly touches on the theme of these talks that you've, uh, that you've sponsored. And it has to do with human beings as, as understanding ourselves as creatures in time, as creatures that understand ourselves in a very distinct way in the temporal domain. I think every creature in some ways is, lives in time, and I have a dog that kind of is able to, you know, knows exactly what time, you know, if it's, if it's dinner time or breakfast, uh, or it's time for a walk. So a strong sense of the clock. But human beings might be the really unique creature because we have the ability to live, in a sense, across the full spectrum of time. We understand ourselves not merely as creatures of the present, not merely as living in the moment, but every moment is connected to every, in a sense, to, to so many moments in the past and so many moments that we anticipate in the future. So we are creatures that exist in the full dimension of temporality, present as well as past and future. That pastness, the way in which our past is present to us, is all around us. Right? We could just look around this church tonight. I didn't know what the church would look like, but I was pretty sure you were going to see in this church a lot of things that remind us of the past. Right? We, have, we have the various stations of the cross that, in which we recollect right? the trial and the um, and the, uh, the, the, the sufferings and the, the, um, uh, the crucifixion of Christ. And we remember that thousands of years after the events of that, of that uh, you know, remarkable and uh, miraculous, but also deeply painful set of days uh, in, a, in a corner of the world which most of the world at that point had not heard. You can go into any Catholic church in the world and probably find the memorialization of those, of those days on the walls. We can see here Our Lady, right, which is very prominent as well on the campus of the University of Notre Dame, as a way of recollecting the mother of our Savior. I'm not sure what I'm going to see over here. I can't see the stained glass windows, but I'm going to bet that there's maybe a few saints Possibly, uh, if they were well illuminated, I could tell you a little bit more. In other words, in any church you go into, and in nearly any downtown that you go into, in nearly um, any street, I shouldn't say any street, but many streets that you would drive down are often named for, often have images of, often will build a statue to recollect, or to use the proper word, to memorialize, to recollect to memory to reflect our memory in ways that bring the past into the present. So the past is never quite past for human beings. It's always present in this moment as well. And this is a really distinct thing about human beings. And I think it's fair to say that you know, it's, it's difficult to think of a creature that memorializes in quite the way that human beings do.
Now, the present is, of course, a kind of mysterious thing, because the present, as soon as you think about the present, it's gone. The present is a constantly fleeting moment that is almost instantaneously in which the future passes through and then becomes the past. The present present is almost something you can't speak of, because as soon as you speak of it, it's gone. It's, It's a fleeting moment. Most of our lives, then, is lived in the present, of course. I should say all of our lives is lived in the present. And yet we tend not to think in the present because it's always gone. We think, rather, almost all the time in terms of how the present relates to the past, whether our immediate past or distant past or a past that might, call, you know, might be recalled to mind if we pass a, you know, pass a place or a monument or a, you know, a restaurant that has meaning for us and suddenly a flood of memories will come into our minds. That memory uh, can be sparked by those encounters uh, with, with places and with objects and with people. But the present is a kind of fleeting and mysterious uh, moment in time. And even when we have these sort of sayings, like, I want to live in the present, I want to live in the present moment, it's really impossible to think of doing that as a human being. The future is, the, in some ways, the most mysterious. It's the most known country that perhaps um, we can think of. We can we think a lot about the future. We think constantly about the future. Right now, most of you are probably thinking, oh, when this guy's done talking, I got something important to do. Uh, I have to get home and do X, Y, Z before the week starts. The future constantly weighs on our mind. Lots of, lots of, this is fading in and out. Oh, I think I was touching the, okay. Uh, we have lots of ideas what the future is likely to look like, but we don't know. We can't know. It constantly surprises us. We can anticipate it. At times, we can predict it with some degree of accuracy. Some people pay good money to have people read their palms or go through tarot decks or pay for horoscopes. Or uh, back in the old days, the prophets would tell us what the future would look like. But we can't know what the future is until it becomes, until it passes from the present into the past, until it's made that journey sort of into the backward rearview mirror of how we see time. Even though it's mysterious, though, for human beings not to anticipate the future, imagine a life in which you no longer, in which we no longer anticipated the future, if we thought the future was not to be. It's hard to imagine being a human being in that condition. This, 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 I think, mystery or this kind of condition was marvelously captured by the novelist P.D. James. If you know P.D. James, a famous mystery novelist, um, wrote a book called The Children of Men, which was made into an okay movie. But the novel is really worth your time. And the novel imagines a world in which human beings cease to have children. For some strange reason nobody can figure out, there are no more children. And so civilization as we know it is going to end. It will decisively end when the last human being dies. And as P.D. James imagines this world, it's a world in which it becomes unbearable for people to live in. The idea that somehow our lifespans in and of themselves without anticipating future lifespans, our children or the future of our civilization, 
would make this whole thing not worth it, would make this whole undertaking not worth it. And she actually portrays suicide centers as one likely outcome of such a world. People just would just want to get it over with. They wouldn't want to go on anymore. By the way, it ends with a miraculous birth by a woman named Mary, just to, just to give you a little bit of a foreshadow of that book. So we are, uh, we are mysteriously this creature, and remarkably this creature, who live in the full temporality of time, past, present, and future, anticipating, remembering, as well as existing in the current now. And this temporal aspect of human being, of course, is deeply personal, and I've noticed a few of you nodding your heads as I've been talking about this. We can all recognize this in our lives. We don't always think about it, but it deeply defines every moment of our lives, this, this fact of this temporality. But it's not just a personal matter, it's also a civilizational matter. And what I want to suggest to you tonight, and this is the sort of thesis of, of, uh, of the talk, is that we can sort of divide up Western civilization into three parts, broadly speaking, or three chapters, depending on how this temporal unfolding was understood. So we can broadly describe three phases of, of, of sort of Western civilization and demarcate them, not just on you know, what, what their architecture looked like uh, or what their political beliefs were, but what they thought the nature of time was. So let me begin with chapter one. And I had asked for a blackboard if one was available, so I'm just going to make some motions in the air and imagine and ask you to, uh, to follow along, but it's not too complicated. These are very simple uh, um, uh, sort of, uh, uh, sort of uh, images that I want to provoke. The first chapter we broadly describe as the Greek and Roman or the pagan tradition, the pre-Christian tradition. And the theory or the widespread belief of time in the pre-Christian, pagan, Greek, and Roman tradition was time went like this. Big circle, round and around and around. Time was a constant cyclical motion in which that which had happened was destined to happen again when the circle turned all the way around. That, that time was simply a constant return to where it had begun. This was true of, of course, the seasons. This was, of course, true of the years. This is, of course, true of the, the, the journey of the sun across the sky. This was also the thesis of politics. If you read uh, 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 Plato, Polybius, um, uh, Aquinas in his own way, it was believed that regimes would cycle. Monarchy would become tyranny, would become aristocracy, would become oligarchy, would become democracy, would become mob rule, and then it would begin all over again. This was the cycle that was believed to find what time was, that it would turn in circles, and that the future would return as the past would return once the cycle had been completed. By the way, this is the original use of the word revolution. Right? That word that we now think of as sort of defining either the French, right, the great French, literally the effort to, to start time over again. Right? In, the, in the French Revolution, they create a new calendar. They, they name the calendar, uh, they, they start with the year zero, and they call the old months by new names. They said, we're going to have an entirely new start of time. And that the modern understanding of revolution is a break of time. But think of, 
think of what revolution really means, right? RPMs, right? A revolution is revolutions per minute, how many times it goes around. So this classical understanding understood time as cyclical. And this led, you could say, um, to a kind of philosophic view that regarded the world as something in which deep and fundamental change never really occurred. The sun would rise and the sun would set. The seasons would come and the seasons would go. Uh, the, the, the lunar cycle would, would go in its cycles. The political order would move from one condition to another. Never perfect, never, never imperfect. It would simply move from one to another. And the accompanying sort of philosophic worldview uh, that arose was either, it tended to be either stoic, to appeal to one um, classical philosophical worldview. And Stoicism is sort of putting up with stuff, enduring things. I always, I always think that the only way you can really uh, successfully be someone who travels often on today's airlines or airlines anytime is to be a Stoic, is to understand you're not in control. Because if you have any other disposition, you're just going to be very frustrated. You just have to take a kind of stoic disposition. You're just going to endure this situation uh, and get through it because at the end of the day, nothing's really going to be much better than it was before. The other way uh, that was dealt with was uh, Epicureanism. The Epicureans, right, a word that we still have today. Right? If you like to eat good food, you're an Epicurean. And back then it meant basically carpe diem, live for the day. Live for the day because there's no, you know, just nothing really going to happen that says tomorrow's going to be better. It might be worse. So live for the day. Now, carpe diem tended to be the watchword and invocation of those who were well off, who could afford to live for the day, whereas the rest of the people had to be kind of stoic. It was a little bit unfair. But that was, you could say, one theory of time in the pre-Christian world led to a couple of very significant political worldviews, one of which was a kind of enduring of the world, putting up with, sort of submitting to its vicissitudes, understanding that you had no control over it, and the other of which was a kind of live for the day, live for the moment. The second chapter is represented in good part by where we are today. It's Christianity. The advent of Christianity, a lot of discussion takes place. Uh, over what the significance of the Incarnation has over what had been the old ancient pagan understanding of time. One reason I have to get back pretty quick uh, tonight, because tomorrow morning we're starting to read City of God by St. Augustine. I'm teaching a, a, a class on the great books. And the City of God is really in lots of ways about how Christians understand time in a very different way from how the pagans understand time that for the Christians, it's not just a kind of constant repetition. Rather, something new happened. A new chapter started. Something incredible happened. And it happens, we replay it up here on the altar, apparently in this church 75 times on a Sunday. Uh, we, we pay homage and honor to that change to that new chapter uh, when the creed is being said and we bow and became, and became man, right? When God became man, something new happened. And Augustine, Augustine argues, he's not the only one, but Augustine argues 
that this meant that something radically new happened in human time. What Gustin suggested then is that we need to understand that time isn't just a cycle. Time actually is moving in a direction. Rather than saying it's just a constant going around that sort of leads nowhere, he said time is moving in a direction. Time is linear. Time is moving towards something. Time is linear in the following way. It has moved steadily toward the moment of incarnation to that Christmas morning in Bethlehem, and suddenly, boom, something new happened in time that had never existed before, and it changed all of time after that. And we were awaiting then the next chapter. There are two big chapters. Lots of things will happen. Lots of little things will keep happening. But the, big, the first big chapter is the incarnation. Of course, part of that chapter is the crucifixion and resurrection. But the next chapter that we're all waiting for, not just sitting here going through cyclical time, we're all waiting for the last chapter, for the eschaton, for the second coming. We're awaiting the return of our Savior. And this completely changes the way in which we think of time. Whether we recognize it or not, we live in a Christian world in which we think time has a trajectory. Time has a trajectory. And this is why you encounter the word hope in the Christian tradition, in fact, as a Christian virtue, in ways you would never encounter that in a pagan tradition. What is there to hope for in the pagan tradition? Maybe just that you're not at a really bad part of the circle. But otherwise, you know, just got to be stoic about it or just live, live for the day. Every Christian, and indeed every, we invite every non-Christian to have hope because there is a final chapter that will be, we hope, the happy chapter, the happiest chapter, in which we might all come to join our Savior in heavenly paradise. That's the significance, you could say, of this transformation of the idea of time. And that one of the three Christian virtues, right, of the three that are named by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. But, of course, hope is certainly a part, as is faith, of that trinity of virtues. There's a third chapter that I want to talk about. And the third chapter occurs much more recently. You can see ways in which it begins to bubble up, percolate up during the Enlightenment, during the period of the revolutions in England, in America, and in France. But it really takes off in the 19th century. It takes off in the, in the years... Uh, um, uh, in the, uh, in the in 18, 1800s, 1900s. Uh, but the 19th century is the years uh, and into the 20th century is when a new definition of time becomes dominant, becomes quite dominant, and especially becomes dominant in the United States. This theory of time has some pretty deep philosophic roots, and I'm going to have a, a quiz and an exam at the end of the talk in which you'll be, you'll be asked... Uh, you know, whether you can leave tonight depends how well you do on the quiz. It begins with philosophers that many of us may have heard of, but perhaps not read. Georg Hegel, 
Immanuel Kant, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Here's one that you probably have heard of and maybe even read, John Dewey. John Dewey may be one of the most important American philosophers and someone who profoundly influenced the American educational system. To this day, many of you may have had to use the Dewey Decimal System as part of your uh, uh, entry into uh, working in in libraries. In this tradition, a kind of transformation occurs in which time isn't just linear in which we're awaiting the eschaton, which we're awaiting the second coming. Time is linear, but it's now moving in this direction. It's moving upward. It's like the stock market used to be. A little bumpy here and there, but always moving upwards, always going upward. It's a theory of progress. It's a theory of progress that's not just, you know, my cell phone has, you know, five lenses, 10 lenses, 50 lenses. It's not just that my razor blade now has 15 blades. It's rather history has a trajectory. History has a necessary trajectory that moves ever upward, in which we are constantly improving, not just materially, but as moral creatures. The past is a time of benightedness, of backwardness, a time that we should in some ways see as necessarily and happily uh, overthrown, passed by, no longer governing us. Rather, the future is likely to be, and indeed we anticipate that the future will be ever better. And some of the authors that that I've named, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who I'm teaching in my other class on Tuesday, argues that the nature of human beings is to be perfectible, that we are perfectible creatures, and we become perfected in time. That time itself is the process and the space in which our perfection um, comes into being. John Dewey, in some of his writings, would speak of democracy itself, of our political order, as the medium in which our perfection would take place. That um, in and through politics, all that, was, that we might once have regarded as imperfect about human beings, too selfish, too greedy, too self-seeking, uh, too parochial, not concerned enough with the welfare of others. All of the, all of the various ways that we might critique this, our, our political age, any political age, would eventually be overcome through the process of time and the perfection of human beings. And another thinker who argued this was Karl Marx. Marx, who was a, an avid reader of, of Georg Hegel. Right? What does Marx argue? Right? History has led us to the moment when we now realize that the contradictions of capitalism can be overcome through a revolution, and after, we, after the revolution occurs, all will be perfected. Imagine there's no country. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine, right? Okay, John Lennon, you got it. But that's... That's, that's Marx distilled, right? So at the end of time, at the end of history, all contradictions would be overcome. This theory of history, which has become very dominant in the American mind, that's certainly dominant in the modern university, we sometimes call it secularization. We sometimes associate it with secularization, but it's a very particular kind of secularization 
because it's not disbelief in God, but rather belief that humanity now acts in the place of God. That humanity now controls our fate and make ourselves into creatures that can perfect ourselves. And that we do so in time, in this time. It's a kind of taking of the Christian idea of the eschaton and bringing it into our history. That we will achieve the perfection of the second coming through our own efforts. Now, the resulting disposition of this worldview, I would describe as a kind of optimism. It's an optimism, right? How do we think about the future? It's not something we have to be stoic about. It's not necessarily something that we have to hope for. It's something we can be optimistic about. Because we know we have certainty. Marx writes a scientific study of this. We have certainty that history has a trajectory that it's moving in an inevitable direction, and that at the end of that will be the perfection of humanity. Now, this optimism comes with the usual kind of, you could say, the accompanying features of of optimism, a kind of belief that everything is getting better in every way, every day, a tendency to see only the benefits of progress, and not the potential costs of progress. The past, so if we can imagine this history is like this, notice that if we have a line that moves like this, we're up here, your grandparents are back here. The past was a time of darkness and ignorance and um, backwardness. We are better than those people. And therefore, this whole idea of memorialization, something deeply wrong with it. Why should we be memorializing the past when it was a time of backwardness? A time that we should see as that which we have overcome rather than that which should be memorialized. So notice that there's a tendency within this optimistic tradition of progress to want to tear down that which is memorialized, to erase that which happened in the past, to redefine or do away with the past, right? A particular hostility to statues these days. It's part of the mindset of seeing the past as something not just that's past, but something that is actually, in relation to which we are actually morally superior. There's another another side to this um, aspect of optimism which is that when it is disappointed, it tends to be disappointed hard. It's like the boyfriend or the girlfriend who fell really hard and then discovered that the person they fell for wasn't perfect. And then suddenly, well, not only do I not like you anymore, but you are, you know, the worst human being I ever met. That bad, really bad breakup. And you could say the flip side of optimism is a kind of pessimism. The flip side of a worldview that tends to see, at least in its, in, its, in, in its pure form, the world is always getting better. History having a direction, or right, being on, a, on the right side of history. That when that expectation is disappointed, as it almost certainly always will be, optimism tends to lead to a kind of deep pessimism. 
the pessimism that accompanies disappointed expectations. And this can lead to a kind of the opposite kind of blindness, the inability now not just to see that everything's, not, not, no longer to see that everything's getting better, but only to see that everything is getting worse. Right? Not to see what the potential good things are that are still. And this has, in some ways, you could ha- say it has the opposite um, effect, which is a kind of resignation or a kind of lassitude or laziness. Achedia would be the, the accompanying sin. Now, I said that we live in a Christian age, or we live at least in a post-Christian age, and so we still have, as a people, whether whether one is Christian or not, we still have, we're still informed by that understanding of hope. You'll often hear the word hope used by people, maybe in a little bit in the sense in which I mean it tonight. But we also live very much in an age defined by this progressive view. It's all around us. Once, Once you start get your, your antennae up for it, you'll, you'll hear it all the time. And you'll hear it in, expressed in the form of a, of a kind of radical optimism or a radical pessimism. It's particularly evident in today's politics. You know, I know we're not supposed to walk, talk about religion or politics, and here I am talking about them both. You can certainly see this, and progressivism has, I mean, it's the label that's used by the left, it's the label that's embraced by the political left in America, but it's it's a label that reflects a kind of deep kind of sympathy between this view of history uh, and what has been traditionally the left across the world. A belief that history has a side, that it moves in one direction and it moves toward a kind of moral improvement. But I think maybe the more interesting, uh, you know, this is, of course, we, this, we're familiar with this if we follow the news, maybe the mo- more interesting aspect or quality of this um, of the, of, of the sort of left's affinity with a progressive view is how much one sees today on the left the opposite expression. I see it constantly. I see it especially among my students. The, 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 disappoint, the disappointed optimist. A deep and pervasive pessimism is more and more evident. And it's, it's on the nominal left, but it also really affects I see it again, especially in young people who've been raised to think that everything that we thought was progress was actually the opposite. Everything that our generation was brought up to think was progress, technological, scientific project, is exactly the opposite of what they were told. It was, in fact, deeply and profoundly anti-human, anti-nature. Anything to do with the environment, with nature, with climate today, is seen and refracted through a kind of the the lens of a disappointed optimist. To the point now where you see more and more people arguing that to have children is immoral. That uh, to have an engine that burns gas is immoral. That not to, you know, not to have a vegan diet is immoral. Uh, A deeply and increasingly anti-humanistic strain of thinking among people you might describe as very deeply disappointed optimists, or a kind of a, 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 a thrust of civilization that has moved in that direction. Well, if I'll, I'll finish up and then, and then I'll take a question. But I also want to say that, that this, um, you, see, you see aspects of this same dynamic also in conservatives. 
and I use that word in some quotes, you have on the one hand, especially among people who you would, might describe as libertarians, a kind of techno-optimism, right? that we have the ability and we should pursue the ability to transform ourselves right? through technology, nanotechnology and bionics and making ourselves into the $6 million man. Sorry, that's a reference for older people in the audience. Uh, you know, uh, increasing um, uh, use of biotechnology. And that anything that might go wrong will just simply will, will show us and teach us how we can actually then further perfect ourselves. But there's also present among some conservatives a kind of, a kind of deep despair of a different form, that things are so bad today especially if you're a Christian, things are so bad today that all you can do is kind of retreat, kind of engage in a kind of form of a, what I described earlier, kind of say, well, to hell with it all. We're going to hold ourselves up in our homes or in our communities or our churches. My friend Rod Dreher, some of you may know Rod Dreher, uh, who's a friend of mine. Pray for him because he's going through some tough times, but uh, but Rod Dreher has made a career writing about this, uh, about the need to sort of retreat from the world to create what he calls Benedict options uh, because everything is going to hell in a handbasket. This is where I just, I, to conclude some, com some of these comments, I want to say that we're in some ways we're, we're surrounded by, uh, uh, we're surrounded by what I would regard as very deeply destructive views of time and in particular how we anticipate the future, that draw on this third chapter of our sort of Western history, with the result being an unjustified optimism and an unjustified pessimism that I think is a really becoming very dominant in our political order, our social order, our educational order, and so on. And here's a task for those of us who call ourselves Christians. First of all, to analyze our own worldview how we think about time, and are we witnesses of hope? Are we witnesses to a genuine, what I would regard as a genuine and deeply Christian way of understanding and viewing, uh, viewing time as a whole, which is to see ourselves as creatures in time, past, present, and future, who understand that the future is not in our hands, it's in God's hands, but we participate with God in the making of the future, we ask for God's intercession in the making of the future, but we also know we don't control it. At the same time, we don't resign. We don't resign to a kind of pessimism that if we don't control it, therefore everything's, everything's lost. Hope is, of course, the disposition we have to the ultimate things, to the state of our souls, to our ultimate dispensation and destination and those of our families and loved ones and all of humanity. But, of course, Aquinas teaches us that this hope while it is ultimately directed to the end things, the last things, nevertheless it is to inform all of our actions as we live in this life. And as Christians then we're called to a very distinct way of being in time. Being in time is not the source of optimism or of pessimism, but of the distinct but necessary Christian virtue of hope. With that, I'm happy to take some questions if you'd like. Okay, so, the question is, those are, I'm sure everyone could hear, uh, where, is, where does this idea that there is no hope, where does it come from? And I, I suppose, I hope that, I hope, 
uh, that the talk, my talk tonight, at least gives you some delineation, some ways of thinking about um, where this comes from today. Um, I, I genuinely think it comes from uh, an understanding of time uh, in which the generation preceding the young people today were deeply and profoundly optimistic about the trajectory of history. Uh, and in which, um, especially a younger generation, I think, um, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting any, I see some younger people here, I'm not suggesting it's the people here, but especially a younger generation, that's been you know, especially raised to believe that human beings have you know, been a real source of evil and destruction of the world, of, of the globe, of nature, of climate, uh, that we are a scourge. The, what you'll often hear is that we are, uh, we're a virus. We are the virus on the planet Earth. And the only cure of this particular virus is for this virus to cease to exist. Right? We've replicated ourselves like a virus does, and we've destroyed our host, which is the Earth, and the only thing that will eradicate this virus is for humanity to cease to be. Now, that's a pretty extreme expression of this, but I could give you some sources in which people express this view that essentially we're a kind of scourge on the earth. I think it comes from, as I, as I said earlier, from a deep and profound sort of disillusionment with that optimistic, that formerly optimistic message. It's the flip side. It's the, it's the same coin of this progressive worldview. It's the flip side of optimism. Uh, but it has now been embraced as a kind of worldview, um, especially, it seems to me, among uh, among a younger generation. And I find myself, um, earlier in my career, I can't believe I'm old enough now to say earlier in my career, earlier in my career I sort of felt I had to spend a lot of my time as a professor pushing back against the optimism of my students, who all thought they were going to go out and change the world and make it a better place uh, and, uh, and transform it. And I, wa and I wanted to chasten that by saying, look, you know, we should be actors, uh, people in the world who act out of hope but we need to be wary of a kind of revolutionary impulse, the impulse that seeks to erase the past, as you were, as you were talking about, the impulse of the French revolutionaries, who, among other things, went, went through the churches and eradicated all of, the, all of the statues and the pictures and the stained glass windows, eradicated any memory of the past, because only when we were freed of the past could we create, then, the perfect new world. When that perfect new world doesn't come into being, which it won't do until Christ comes again, disappointed optimists become very deeply, profoundly, profound pessimists. And I think in, in, a, in a kind of, in a certain way, I find myself today as a professor, as a teacher, trying to give my students a bit of hope, trying to encourage them to say, as human beings, we actually can, can help to build this kingdom. We have a responsibility. It's a responsibility to be stewards of the world, but not to see ourselves as a virus, but as something, a genuine gift to each other and to the world. So I, it is, it's a perplexing, and part of my talk tonight is just working through my own thinking about um, what I see increasingly in a kind of you know, despairing younger generation. Uh, but I think it comes from a kind of the, the, uh, the kind of oscillation that you see. In a, from a sort of progressive view of philosophy that oscillates between a kind of deep and profound optimism 
and a deep and profound pessimism. Thank you for your talk. Um, it, it, when you mentioned the 1800s and um, Marx, et cetera, it seems like we went into progressive, progressivism and away from the Christian linear way um, and towards more secularization, sort of the post-Christian world. What role do you see for Catholic institutions such as universities, schools, etc., the church, to restore some of this hope, realistic hope, not blind optimism or pessimism, but to restore this hope in this extreme progressive culture that we seem to be in? Thank you. That, I mean, it's, it's a question I think about a lot as a teacher, as a parent, as a member of a church. Um, so one of the fatal aspects, it seems, when it, so I'm, I'm a critic of progressivism uh, for the reasons I've laid out. And as a Catholic, I think one in some senses has to be. Uh, and I think one of its deepest and most profound, um, let's say its flaws or its sort of self-deceptions is the idea that somehow we can, to go back to my previous answer, we can, by overcoming the past, we can create a kind of new humanity and a new world order, a new people, a new society. That we can, if we can erase the past, we can make the world altogether new. It seems to me that if we want to reconnect the past and the future, the place to begin is, with, is in the past. And it's with a genuine reckoning with the past that avoids I would say the twin temptations of, on the one hand, um, obviously the progressive view that dismisses the past, a kind of dismissiveness of that which we are heirs of and that we've inherited. But also it, it can't, um, it has to avoid the other temptation of nostalgia, which sometimes a more conservative mindset has a tendency to wish for. It can be neither nostalgic nor dismissive of the past, but a genuine reckoning. And this is where the language of memory is so important. Memory and, and memorialization is so important. Memory can remember the good and the bad, but one thing that memory does is to recognize that whatever it is that we think is good that we have today is a consequence of what has been handed on to us from yesterday. And of course, whatever we think is, needs to be improved today is also a consequence of what has been handed on to us. But we need a kind of disposition of a certain humility and even gratitude for both of those things, for the good things that we enjoy and for the understanding of what we can improve upon, and recognizing that we also suffer under what are doubtless going to be conditions and actions and beliefs that the future will regard as insufficient. But we hope not to be dismissed by our children and by our grandchildren merely as backward-thinking people. So if I was, you know, I am, a, I am a professor at a Catholic university teaching history, introducing, deeply steeping our students in the past. For me, teaching my students works from the past that for them may not be immediately applicable to the things that they think are most important today, but if they spend, as we've done, we've spent the entire first half of the semester in this, this uh, great books class where I'll be reading Augustine with them starting tomorrow, we've read only the Odyssey and the Republic of Plato, only two books. And they've come away thinking, I understand 
my situation today as a human being a lot better because I've read these two books. It's deeply, a deep encounter with the sedimentation of our civilization so that one recognizes that the world we live in isn't just created by us. We're, we're all heirs. We're, we all inherit something. So a kind of deep and profound encounter with the past allows one, I think, to have a kind of hopeful view toward the future. Because hope is, of course, chastened by a certain kind of humility. This is something that Aquinas, Augustine, all of these figures, the great Christian thinkers, constantly emphasize. Hope is accompanied by, in a sense, its twin of humility. If it's not accompanied by humi humility, it's likely to become a kind of optimism. But hope is accompanied by humility because we recognize that as heirs of traditions and of patterns and of beliefs and of ways of life, we have stuff that we can work with, but we're also in some ways limited by those inheritances. And this is not a curse, this is just a reality. So I would, I would start with any curriculum, any school, any Catholic institution, and I think this is one of the, of course, this is the central aspect of what it is to be a Catholic. To be a Catholic is to be deeply engaged in an institution that is designed to remember. Right? I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but to be a Catholic is to be like, we're going to join a club that we just spend a lot of time remembering, a lot of time remembering every, you know, every week. We're going to remember what Christ did up here at that table, and we're going to remember uh, the actions. We're going to remember the saints. We're going to remember uh, the people who have passed right, in, the, in the intentions ends every week in every church. It ends by, by remembering the people who have passed away. We're going to help them on their journey through purgatory to keep them in our prayers. This is an institution that remembers. That's what we can bring to the world, is we have to reconnect time. And a world that is progressive wants to forget the past, wants to say the past is no longer relevant to us. To reconnect time, then, is to say that we can have a kind of responsive and responsible view toward the future that is connected through the sort of sinews of the present back into the past? That's a long-winded answer to a really good but hard question. Thank you so much for this evening. Um, perhaps this is simplistic, but are you saying that in the continuum of time, the incarnation opened tomorrow for us? And as believers in the incarnation, we need to share that. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful Hope way of putting tomorrow. it. That's a wonderful way of putting it. I hadn't thought of it in that way before. Uh, but it's, of course, you know, I mean, all, all humans have anticipated tomorrow. But we anticipate tomorrow in a very different way. Because it's suffused. Suffused. It should be suffused with hope. No matter how bad your day is. No matter how terrible it's been, I mean, no matter how many tragedies, you know, all of us face, we're all facing, in our hearts and perhaps in secret, we're facing terrible trials. And yet as Christians, no matter how bad those are, we are suffused, and tomorrow ought to be suffused with hope. And that's something that someone living in a pagan world simply did not have. Didn't have. Your, your days, right, your days were not suffused with hope. It was just... You live, you die, that's it. You live, you die, that's it. Wait, as I mentioned, we read half this past semester, we read the Odyssey of Homer, and my students were just stunned by it. They said, what kind of a world is this in which basically 
there's no expectation that, we'll ever, that there will ever really be justice. I mean, it's basically, Odysseus comes home and he says he wants to reinstitute justice. What does he do? He kills all the suitors, kills the serving women, and he's going he's to kill all the parents of the suitors, those of you who know the story, if Zeus doesn't stop him. And what I tell my students is that the, the homecoming of Odysseus is just the continuation of the Trojan War. It's a war that hasn't ended. We all know vendetta upon vendetta upon vendetta, and justice will never be reached because there's never that moment of mercy. There's never that moment when we can say, we have to say enough. What is it, you know, I think to put ourselves into that worldview is so difficult for us because we live in a world in which the incarnation occurred, or at least I hope that we experience that, because tomorrow ought to be suffused with hope. So I I love that formulation. Thank you. I may steal it, but I'll give credit to the the discerning woman in the, in the audience. Any others? First of all, thank you so much. I really enjoyed your talk and um, wonder what your perspective is as an educator and what your experience has been as an educator touting Christ and his faith and, and, and the idea of hope and love. Do you get pushback? What has been your perspective in terms of the evolution of the progressive agenda in schools? So um, I mentioned that um, what we often call secularization is actually not what we typically think it is. That when we think of secularization, we th- what, we, what automatically comes to mind is, okay, that means we're becoming a godless world that doesn't believe in anything. I think the opposite is the case. And again, Augustine is really instructive on this. Secularization is the, becomes, and what what we can now clearly see is the promotion of the idea that we now are in control of our own salvation. We have the tools for our own salvation. We, We manage the future. We know what the future looks like. We know what we want it to look like. And we have the ability to realize that. So you could say it's the opposite of hope, which is accompanied by humility and the belief that God is ultimately right, the, the insurer of the future. Providence is the insurer of the future. What we are then seeing isn't just secularization as a godless, you know, um, valueless worldview. It is a replacement religion. It is a, it is a contending religious worldview that puts human beings in the place and status of where God should be. And so notice what, what, what comes along with this belief. It wasn't there in the 19th century. It wasn't there as clearly. But you can see how where we are now relates directly back to arguments that John Dewey made. For example, we have it in our ability to decide what our nature is. I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm something else. We have it in our ability to change and shape our biology. We have it in our ability to believe whatever it is we wish. We are the creators. We are no longer created by God, man and woman. We are the creators. So what we should notice is that a school system can never be valueless because a school system is always going to reflect the deepest values of its civilization, which is going to include its religious beliefs. Now, for a long time, as Catholics, I'm going to get really, I'm going to get a little pugnacious here. As Catholics, we came to this country on a kind of quiet agreement 
we Catholics would kind of keep our views to ourselves in exchange for being left alone to have our own schools and our own institutions and our hospitals and so forth. And we wouldn't make any claim on the public sphere. We would be good Americans by keeping our Catholicism relatively quiet. Uh, Mario Cuomo came to Notre Dame in the 1980s uh, when abortion, of course, was then as now a big issue. And at a time when the Democratic Party was changing in its views on abortion, said, I am personally pro-life, but as a political leader, I have to, be, I have to follow the law of the land. Right? Why? Why? Why couldn't he say, I think this is wrong and the law should be changed? Because this was part of the agreement. This was part of the deal. I think we do have a calling now not to be people who retreat, not to be people who are seeking the Benedict option, though I think we need to strengthen our families and our communities. But we also have an obligation, it seems to me, as Catholics to go out and to proclaim the word. I just finished reading book one, chapter nine of Augustine's City of God. I recommend it to you. If you've got a copy at home, take it out tonight and read it. He says, the Romans deserved the punishment of God because they were evil because they were wicked. He said, but so was anyone who didn't speak out about their wickedness. So was anyone who didn't speak about, out about the wickedness of the Romans. And I read that and I said, wow, I'm probably pretty guilty. Because he said, what do, we, what are the, what do those people care about? They care about the, their status in the world. They care about the reputation. They care about what the world thinks about them. So I think this is a time when the old deal is, in a sense, off because our schools, our children, our churches are no longer safe from this new religion. They are directly in the target of this new religion. It's a competitor religion that seeks, in almost every respect, to be opposite of what it is. I would say we as Catholics are called to believe. And it calls for a faith, the faith of St. Michael and St. Joan of Arc, and maybe a little bit less of St. Benedict. And with that, i got to go back because i got to teach tomorrow. So thank you very much for... Thank you, Professor.